Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We have had a number of shows recently about the Middle Ages. We had Joel Kotkin, the Southern Californian geographer on the show, talking critically about a return to the Middle Ages and uh, what he describes as the coming of neo-feudalism. Uh, Neo-feudalism then in the Middle Ages is all the rage for better or worse. My guest today on the show, Tim Egan, uh, is a New York Times columnist, best-selling writer, and the author of a very different kind of book on the Middle Ages, on the past. Uh, His book is A Pilgrimage to Eternity from Canterbury to Rome in Search of Faith. Tim, um, are you in some ways nostalgic for the Middle Ages? No, I'm not in any way nostalgic for the Middle Ages, though I think the Middle Ages did get a bad rap, you know, bloodletting, death by the age of 30. Uh, Monty Python certainly gave us an image of it. I mean, there were, there, were little, there has been a revival in books saying that basically that, you know, that, that the standard line that, you know, life was short and grim and, and brutal, it, it does a bad rap to it. But I, I did walk and relive the premier pilgrimage trail of the Middle Ages, you know, in my book. So the Via Francigena is, was walked by upwards of a million people a year, starting more than a thousand years ago. And they would go from Canterbury to Rome and, you know, thousands of them would never make it. Uh, it was the ultimate trip of their life. It was the one thing that was going to determine whether they had an afterlife. They would seal their doom at home. They would make sure that their wife would have someone to remarry. They would uh, say goodbye to their kids. They would close out all their affairs and then go off on this nearly year-long walk um, facing predators and you know thieves and all sorts of obstacles to get up and over the back of the continent at Great St. Bernard Pass to walk to Rome. So I did relive this you know, what, again, was the most extraordinary and important pilgrimage trail in all the Middle Ages, but I'm not the least bit nostalgic for it. Um, I'm happy to have, uh, you know, antibiotics, and I'm happy to have Zoom and everything else. Uh, you describe it, Tim, as the, the ultimate trip for the Middle Ages. What would be the equivalent today as an ultimate trip? We had Carl Hoffman on the show a few weeks ago, who, 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 who spent six months of his life uh, at Trump rallies, uh, and there was a kind of a religious fervor in some ways t- to that experience. Uh, you note, I think, uh, at one point in your journey, the experience was something like uh, uh, for the first time when you saw Bruce Springsteen or another kind of high-profile rock experience. What, what would be the equivalent today? Yeah, so, I mean, seeing the Pope was like that. I mean, there's this, you know, sort of anticipation. You know, everyone's on the same page. Everyone's being nice to each other. All the pilgrims are buzzing. And then you sort of hear this rumor that he's coming out. And then you see him off. And then he kind of rides the Popemobile in front of you. And you get close enough to almost touch him. That's what it was like. I mean, I, I can't imagine. I was trying to do something what 
pilgrims on this trail. And by the way, you know, a fair amount of the people I met were atheists, uh, agnostics, people who have no faith, people who like me are lapsed Catholics. There, there weren't that many people who were like really devout. I mean, they were just curious, but there's a, there's a term that, that I heard on the trail, which was deep walking, which is that you can sort of shut your devices off and devote yourself to trying to think through a couple of topics every day. And that's what I tried to do. That was very difficult. Um, I, I'm an ADD person by nature. I'm easily distracted. Um, so it was very difficult to have this sort of deep walking, but that, that's what was good for me. I can't imagine going to Trump rallies and being anything more than you know, someone who's observing this thing in horror, as opposed to what I was trying to do. I was trying to walk towards something and to trying to resolve some things. That's what a pilgrimage is, is walking towards something. The way is made by walking. Um, and, and you talk about the, the open road as a kind of liberation. You'll be very well known to many of our listeners because of your um, environmental writing, your column for the New York Times. I was in some ways surprised that there wasn't much uh, environmentalism in the book. Is the act of walking in itself an environmental gesture, a love of the earth? And is that perhaps what ties us back to the Middle Ages? I think that's a great point. Um, I felt very close to this very old land. I mean, there's probably no place on this trail that isn't well known. Um, and certainly there've been a million feet before my feet that touched this ground. Now I live in an area right now in the Pacific Northwest, even though I'm in a metro area of 3 million people, I'm 45 minutes from a wilderness. I can go into three million acre Alpine Lakes wilderness area and go places where no human footprint has been. This trail has been trod by so many people before me. So it's just the opposite of that. But it is an environmental act because you, you're close to the ground. You, you, you pause to you know, get, feel the wind on your face. You understand what fragrances are in certain areas. You, you understand um, a little bit of, I wouldn't call it pure nature because it's manicured nature unless you're in the Alps. And even that is, is way more manicured than I was used to. I mean, I, I've been hiking in the Cascade Mountains my whole life. And suddenly I get to the Alps and it's, you know, there's a little refugio here where you can go get a beer or a fine meal and little huts here and there. It was very different in that sense. Uh, and, and I guess from the narrative as well, the act of walking um, forces you or certainly forced you to recognize the limitations of your own body, which is, of course, a, 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 a Christian preoccupation. Uh, what did the act tell you about your own body? I was very envious of the fact that we're relatively similar ages and you, and you looked or you appeared for much of the book to be a bit of a Superman. And then at the end, your body began to fall apart. <laughs> well, I'll take the insult with the compliment. Thank you. Um, you know, I've climbed every major peak in the Northwest, all the, all the volcanoes, and I've been an alpinist since I was a kid. I'm not a technical climber, but I'm a plotter. I'm in fairly good shape. And, you know, getting in shape for this event was not really much of a big deal. I did some stairs. I, I run five miles every other day anyway. It was harder for me to get in spiritual shape, harder for me to declutter my mind, harder for me to make amends with some people I'd still had grudges with. Um, but, you know, I broke down as you implied. I mean, I had a terrible injury. There's still a huge lump in my thigh where, you know, you have these quadriceps, they call them quads. One of my four broke and it was like a rubber band. It rolled up. It's now in a ball. I went to see a doctor when I came home and he said, you're going to have a permanent lump in your thigh where the quad snapped and rolled up. 
I got terrible blisters uh, even after buying the best shoes that REI could sell um, because I didn't bother to break them in beforehand. I mean, I heard something at Great St. Bernard Pass from this priest who told me the best thing I could do was listen. Uh, he just gave me one word, listen. And I didn't listen to my body. So I got this terrible injury in my thigh and these blisters that you know led to my feet are sort of out of alignment. I mean, they didn't really heal. I still have them. So I did pay a price with that. The subtitle of the book, a wonderful book, by the way, from Canterbury, uh, the, the subtitle of A Pilgrimage to Eternity is From Canterbury to Rome in Search of a Faith. An alternative subtitle, Tim, perhaps this wouldn't get past the publishers, but I would find it rather amusing, is From St. Pancras to St. Augustine. Because, of course, you began your journey at St. Pancras Station in London. Um, and all the way, it seems as if you're heading towards the greatest of all Christian thinkers and um, philosophers, St. Augustine. You're ambivalent, deeply ambivalent about Augustine, but given Augustine's obsession with the body and sex, that seems to define the narrative. Would that be an alternative subtitle from St. I think that's brilliant. St. Augustine? Yeah, I think that's actually brilliant. You know, the Catholic Church is uniquely enmeshed with the life of the saints. Uh, you have a supporting cast in this faith, a huge supporting cast, most of it very heavily mythologized. Uh, you know, I grew up hearing that Augustine was the capo di capo. He was the preeminent intellectual force of the church and his writings still really hold up. But I made a decision early on to listen to him on my Kindle, uh, notably his confessions, which are his best known work, and to share it with Christopher Hitchens. Right. Really great, wonderful British author who wrote a wonderful book called um, God is Not Great, where he's and sort of let them have at the argument. My conclusion on Augustine and, you know, I did get some shit from, you know, Jesuit, eminent Jesuit theologians on this. who were appalled that I went after the great man was that he was a deeply troubled guy. I mean, he loved. But he acknowledged he was troubled. There wasn't any ambivalence, even in the confessions, was there? Right, but he was. I think he was deeply confused. I mean, this is a guy who could never take the physical side, and this is the story of the Catholic Church, Andrew. They can never take sexuality and merge it, you know, with the with the physical side, with the human nature. So he famously said, you know, after he'd given up his liberty in life, uh, "Lord, give me chastity, but not just yet." He wanted one last fling. Um, and then once he embraced chastity, he turned against all the sexual pleasures. And it just, it just seems absurd that this man had, you know, written out, you know, a central part of humanity. And, and that's, that's the, you know, when you go deep in it, as I did for this long discovery, you realize that this was, this was kind of doesn't come from the teachings of Jesus Christ. Same with homosexuality. There's not a word in the New Testament where Christ condemns homosexuality. All these rules on sex and the, you know, what, you, what can happen and, and interactions between fellow human beings physically came later. They were codified by mere mortals who decided that this great impulses of life were awful things. And Augustine was crucial in all of that. So yeah, I ended up coming down on him fairly heavily because I thought he was not just troubled, but a very confused man. I didn't think the logic held up. I don't want to argue that all men are like Augustine, but most of the bad guys in the book, um, the bad people in the, in the book are guys and men uh, from, I don't know if St. Augustine is a bad guy, but he's certainly not a good guy. Yeah, I wouldn't say he was a bad guy. 
I wouldn't say he's, as you say a confused guy there was your local priest your your uh, who who uh, was a sexual criminal uh, and 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 it seems would it be fair to say uh, that most of the good people in the book spiritual or otherwise are female the 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 real hero or heroine of the book my sense to maybe you maybe you'll disagree is your mother she seems to be the spirit or the spiritess behind the book uh, your your daughter and your wife appear later they're the ones who save your body from uh, from the the injuries Joan of Arc pops up as this uh, sexual icon um, what did you discover on this long walk about men and women and Christianity um, well I want to thank you first for saying something deeply deeply insightful I mean I think that this is the first time someone said that to me. And I think that's true. I, I guess I hadn't given it really deep thought. My mother is the hero of this book, that a woman who was, you know, loved to read, loved to, was an artist, but gave up it all to have seven kids, one right after the other, and followed the Catholic Church, and ultimately was nearly killed by the church when they told her that, you know, having a hysterectomy would be a bad thing when her medical doctor told her otherwise. She stayed with the church even after pedophilia. It, you know, came for our family in a way, you know, that's, so thank you for that. I think that's, that's something no one has said to me. And I think if, if you were my shrink and I was on the couch, I'd probably say you're, you're onto something there. Um, that said, you left out the most important woman in the book, San Lucia Filippini, who was a, was a good woman who lived 300 years ago and was made a saint by just virtual being a good woman. What she did was she, you know, opened schools for girls at a time when that was a very rare thing to do. And when she died, her body did not decompose. And the Catholic Church has 300 or so saints where they say the body has not decomposed. And they, in latter days, they brought in medical doctors to say, see, you can't prove that this body is decomposed. Well, I saw her crypt. And I went in, it's in Montefiascone, which is about 40 miles from Rome. It's under the third biggest Duomo in all of Christendom. And I went in there and near the end of my pilgrimage on a dark and stormy night and walked up to this crypt. And I, it's very hard to explain to a, you know, a fellow lover of reason, which you sound like, but her effing eyes opened. You know, I mean, I, I saw this body of San Lucia Filippini that was in pretty good shape. I mean, I, I tell people her skin was like Elizabeth Warren's skin or Nicole Kidman's skin. She said great skin for a woman who's 362 years dead. And she, you know, that could be an embalming trick or, you know, American girl doll that opened her eyes. But as I crept up there and I took pictures of this, I saw her eyes open. So it got me into thinking what was with this woman. Um, and rare in a Catholic church run by men, you know, a woman who just did good deeds and tried to advance education for girls was sanctified. And you can go in the crypt and see her fine skin tomorrow if you want. Now, at the end of my pilgrimage, I was gathered with a bunch of people. We were all drinking wine, having a wonderful dinner. And I told them, I told this Brit who became sort of my buddy um, about what I'd seen. And he lit up and he said, oh, my God, uh, this guy I walked with saw the same damn thing. I said, really? And it turned out it was a Russian physicist who was walking the Via Francigena to do penance for his role in the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. He felt awful about that release of you know, uh, that happened, I don't know, 30 some years ago. And he claims he saw the same thing. So, I mean, that, I'm sort of evading your question after complimenting you on your insight, but that San Lucia Filippini was one of the most extraordinary women in this hotel. 
you, you, you suggested earlier you were a lapsed Catholic. Did that experience make you more or less of a lapsed Catholic? Yeah, so let me just back up for one second. When you look at the numbers on these annual surveys that the Pew uh, survey does, lapsed Catholics are the fastest growing segment in the United States of any religious category. They, 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 they call them the nuns who say nuns in N-O-N-E-S, people who have no... Um, and in Britain, of course, it's even worse. They say half the people in Britain have no faith at all. And in 50 years, there will be no Christianity, no active Christianity. I don't know if I buy that, but that's what they say the trends are going. So I'm, I'm sort of typical of my cohort. That is people who are culturally Catholic. I'm Irish Catholic. And then, you know, that means more of this cultural baggage than anything else, but then are lapsed. Now, having tried to work through and walk through some of these issues of Catholicism, Here's what happened to me, Andrew. Um, I, I did become, it's hard to say this without sounding like a hoorah. I did become more deeply spiritual. I did realize that I had neglected a, a, a huge part of my life. I just let it lapse. I'd stopped thinking about these issues. I'd stopped trying to feel these things. I stopped giving a damn about spirituality. I was just sort of a cynical journalist, not cynical journalist, but a person who believes in logic, reason, facts, Prove it to me. You know, I'm a skeptic by profession. So um, I realized that I'd let so much of my spiritual side lapse. And what happened to me was I became much more alive to spirituality. I became much more open to possibility. I became much more tolerant of genuine, thoughtful people who've experienced this. The flip side of that is I turned much more against the institution of the church. Having looked at that awful history, I say at the end of the book, the weight of that history is too much to get me to believe in institutional Christianity. And just real quickly, the wars of religion, which I don't know if you knew anything about. I didn't know anything about the wars of religion. This was Christian on Christian war, not Muslim against Christian. They kill 15% of the population of France and 20% of the population of Germany in the wars of religion. And that's one of the things, actually, I wanted to bring up. Uh, earlier this week, we interviewed the Lebanese journalist Kim Khatas uh, about her new book, Black Wave, um, which suggests that the Western belief in this intrinsic, profound gulf between Shia and uh, Sunni Islam is actually itself a construction and it's not historic. But reading your book uh, and the narratives of all these slaughters, both of Protestants of Catholics and Catholics of Protestants, suggest that that, that schism is profound and historic. Uh, is that something that, um, as you suggested, you, you learnt from this trip? Do you yeah, think you, couldn't be more, you couldn't be more dead on in that. I didn't go into this thinking that way, but as I started to drill down, and there's a scene in the book where I go to the side of this massacre, this Huguenot massacre, right. with a little plaque on the wall where these Catholics, local Catholics came through and slaughtered everyone in that room. Men, women, children drove swords through their hearts. And then to make sure everyone was dead, they burned the church, they burned their worship place. And what was this crime that, that merited this killing? Well, they were a different sect of Christianity. They weren't Muslims. They weren't, you know, they were quote infidels. And as you said, I started, as I was thinking through these wars of religion, started thinking of the Sunni-Shia split. And, you know, I've always, you know, scorned it, made fun of it. 
And I will continue to do it because why should people kill each other over different interpretations of their same faith? But the Catholic Church was there ahead of the, excuse me, Christianity was there ahead of the Shia versus Sunni split and had a horrible slaughter. Just to give you one number, if the war of religion happened in the United States today and we had casualties on the level that happened in both France and Germany, we would lose 48 million Americans dead would be killed. That's the percentage of the population that would be killed in the name of the Prince of Peace. And so, you know, it made me think of that and made me think of this is what institutional religion does. As a side note, another conclusion I had was the great mistake of Christianity, which starts out as a really interesting spiritual startup, you know, and women are allowed to minister it allows average people into it. It doesn't have a hierarchy. It's a simple philosophy of you know, loving the least among us, helping the least among us. But the great mistake of Christianity is when they hook up with the state. And Constantine, Emperor Constantine in the year 312 makes it the, starts to make it the state religion. First of all, he's, he's tolerant to it. And then within 50 years, it becomes the state religion of the Roman Empire. From then on, it was almost all bad. Um, Tim, one of the, the reasons you went on this pilgrimage was to escape the iPhone and, and escape Twitter and Facebook and, and our digital culture. And yet on the trip, you learned quite a lot about technology, of Gutenberg and the role of books. What, what did the pilgrimage teach you about the relationship between technology and meaning? And indeed, whether or not we are a... A, 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 an oversaturated tech society today. I mean, that's the, that's the complaint is that we're oversaturated. It's made us, you know, non-thinkers, and we have nature deficit disorder. And you know, I agree with a lot of that in sort of practice. I guess. I mean, I I think there's some some really good thoughts in that. I had a very very difficult time doing my digital cleanse. I have a scene in the book where I'm in a monastery, and all I want to know is, you know the score of my baseball team and Trump's latest approval but yeah, rating. But on the other hand, yeah, you're, you're, it seems like half the time when you're on the road and you're checking your emails, you're trying to figure out whether you got an audience with Pope Francis. So, right. so I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> to it. No, I'm trying to get this interview with the Pope. I'm playing every Jesuit card I had in my background, every New York Times <laughs> card I have to get this interview with the Pope. So yeah, without my phone, I wouldn't be able to do that. I'm waiting anxiously for it. But to answer your larger question, um, so I, go, I went to this, place called Saint-Omer in France, where these monks used to labor, you know, in a scriptorium. Most people aren't familiar with that term. You are, because you know the Middle Ages, but it was basically a factory of these poor word slaves, you know, up there with their worn fingers and a little candle and their broken eyesight and the cold walls of this thing, laboring, yeah, laboring till the end of the, the last light to transcribe like one page in an illuminated man's manuscript. And after an entire year of four people, they would produce one book. And one book, you know, was run by the state and run by the church, and they would allow it to be seen. Then Gutenberg comes along, and it just blows up the world. And, you know, Protestantism, Martin Luther would never have been able to wage his, his rebellion, which started off as a great rebellion. Martin Luther himself then was a great anti-Semite, and he turned awful, I thought. Um, but he would never have been able to change the world without Gutenberg. And so I don't think we know yet, and this is too big of a can of worms and too big of another discussion, how much the, the current technology that we're all obsessed with will change the world. We do know it, the disinformation part of it, but again, that's another conversation.
coming back to your mother and what I learned from the book, um, the story that really resonated with me was when you revealed that your mother almost left your father. She found a man who um, was perhaps in some ways more intellectually suited to her. Uh, your father was a simple man, but a good man. Uh, and your mother gave up this other man because uh, of the, the sacrifice for her family. To me, the, the value that most came out of the book was the value of, of family. And I, I note uh, in, a, in a New York Times piece uh, a month or two ago, you wrote about the value of the Obama marriage and of family. Was that a value? And of course, your two children joined you on the trail at, at points, and then your wife joined you. You clearly have a, a very good, healthy, happy family. Was this something you learned on this trip, the value of sacrifice when it comes to family and the relationship perhaps between family and religion? I mean, I know you've got a Jewish wife, which probably complicates things a bit when it comes yeah, to- Yeah, it totally complicates things. And, and you know, it's, she was very skeptical when I talked about San Lucia Filippini appear, opening her eyes to me. Um, you know, I wouldn't say so much it was something I learned. It was something that was in my background and I came to appreciate. And, you know, there's- um, my mother was very tortured by this. She was an intellectual and, and she did give up her, the life of the mind and the life of art. And she married a blue collar guy. I couldn't have told that story if they weren't both deceased right now. Um, I've lost both of them. So I, I can tell that story and not, not embarrass them or hurt them. But she, I heard late in life about this affair she had with a local librarian who of all things in little Spokane, Washington was, was French. a Frenchman. Yeah, yeah, it's a little beret, you know. And, oh, John, they, they do not appreciate what a beautiful woman you are. I can just see this guy laying it on, you know. And she, she after a while, she's going to the library every day. Like, Mom, where are you going? What's going on with this? And I heard later that they had quite this little thing, and she was ready to leave all of us, seven little kids, and her blue collar husband, um, to take up with this French librarian with the beret and probably the cigarette off the side of his mouth as well. Uh, you know, she, that side of her life wasn't attended to. But what I came to appreciate, and I'm glad you touched on the, my piece about the Obamas, was that um, the sort of suck it up aspect of a marriage. One of the tenets of the Catholic Church, unless you're Newt Gingrich, the thrice married, uh, you know, um, his wife was the emissary to Rome under President Trump. And if you're connected, you can get a dispensation, but most Catholics are married for life because it's considered a, you know, a very awful thing to leave a marriage. And I came to appreciate that um, there's an emphasis on trying to stay in a marriage. What Michelle Obama wrote, I, I'm only now because of your insight putting this together, was that what she learned after three decades of Barack is you stay together in part because, you know, excuse me, you make adjustments in part because it's the only way to stay together. And um, my mother told me late in life that she came to love my father, who she did initially didn't really love because she saw what a great daddy was. And she saw these other parts of it. So and you saw that too, uh, as you said. I, I totally saw that. I mean, I saw that loving side of this blue collar guy when he held my hand when I was a little boy and things he did to make me feel good when I was afraid of things. Um, I'm mean, guessing in, in, in a way, um, Tim, you went on this pilgrimage to eternity to escape America, uh, spending a few months in, in Europe, uh, walking the Alps and Italy and France is uh, a, a nice relief from what's happening here. Uh, you note in the book and in this conversation that religion, organized religion is in crisis in 
in Europe, but it isn't in crisis in America. Maybe Catholicism is, but certainly not white evangelicalism. Um, we've had a number of shows on this. You had a recent piece again on Mike Pence's complicity in, 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 in Trump. What do you make, firstly, of this revival of, of religion, of, of a, a certain kind of white evangelical religion in America? Uh, uh, do you take it seriously? And, and, and what did you learn about this revival of religion in America on this walk? Great, great question. So I did go on this pilgrimage in part, you know, to to drill down on things that I'd stopped thinking about, but in part to escape America. You know, I mean, Trump's America has been an awful place in many in many respects. I just wanted to get away from it all and clear my head and go to someplace where I could dive in. I could time travel. I could go back a thousand years and, and go into the minds of these wonderful people. As to your question, there's two things going on. I mentioned earlier that Organized religion is in decline, especially among young people. People under the age of 30 just do not belong to organized faiths, and that's that's in decline. But a seemingly contradictory thing is going on is that evangelicals, Protestant religions, have, have never had more power in this country. Um, and they're sticking by this president, even as he's done so many things that would seem to violate their faith. The thing about Pence is he... Mike Pence, who's you know wears his faith on his sleeve, is a very devout evangelical. was was a Catholic, became an evangelical. Talked about his how his faith guides him every step of the way. He uses faith to gloss and sanctify the awful things that the president he serves does. That's a very common thing that people in the Middle Ages did. I mean, kings and monarchs, you know, slaughtered. Innocence, starved innocence, raped young women on the night of their wedding, which was the you know right of kings, etc. And it all had a spiritual gloss. It all had the imprimatur of the enabler of the church. Well, that's the equivalent of what Mike Pence does, I think, to the worst excesses of Trump. Now, where will this go? I mean, are they at their peak right now? Is this the peak of their power? Um, I happen to think that a lot of people are going to see the hypocrisy of what they did. And again, especially among young people. And I, I can't imagine them having any more power than they've had in the last four years. Political power. Uh, uh, Tim, your, your, your book, A Pilgrimage to Eternity, is very visual. Uh, it will make, no doubt, I don't know whether you've sold the movie rights yet, but it will make a great movie or a great TV show. Uh, one of your other best-selling books, award-winning books on the Dust Bowl has already been made into a movie. Who is going to play Tim Egan in the A Pilgrimage to Eternity? <laughs> uh, well, you know, when I was younger, people always said I looked like Tom Hanks. And, uh, you know, <laughs> he's a fine actor. I don't know. I mean, it would, it would probably have to be, you know, one of those like funny Steve Coogan character actors who yeah, I was thinking of the Coogan because Michael uh, Winterbottom has a, a series of films uh, uh, with Coogan and another English <laughs> comic actor who, who travel around Europe talking to one another but the interesting thing about this book is that you're talking to us you're on your own that's right which makes it hard for from a film standpoint I, I have had some overtures but it makes it hard because I'm talking to myself largely. I, I, I like the Coogan construct. You know, I say very honestly in the book, a pilgrim doesn't have to suffer. Just because I'm walking a pilgrimage route doesn't mean I'm going to have a medieval tunic and, you know, have leeching as my medical uh, 
resolution. I, I, I tried to enjoy everything that this trail has to offer. Let me just tell your listeners, it, it's a fabulous trail. Most people go on the Camino de Santiago, which is the better known trail through Spain. And I, it's brutal, it's dry, it's, there's a million pilgrims. This thing is extraordinary. Once you get out of the flatlands, of, you know, Flanders Field and that part of France, every step of the way is, is extraordinary. It's, it's spectacular, it's beautiful, it's historically resonant. It's just wonderful. It's like stepping into a Technicolor dream. I enjoyed every step of it, even when I got badly injured, because it's spectacular. And, and it, I'll be honest with you, one of the reasons I went on it was because I wanted to see this great country, drink this great wine, eat this great food, and along the way, find out something about this faith. Yeah, eating great food. Uh, I would not advise people to read this book if you're hungry, because it's um, <laughs> not only is it cinematic, but it's a it's a, it's a, a gastronomic um, odyssey, especially of Italian food. Finally, Tim, um, you suggested earlier that you'd given up on the the institutional infrastructure of of, of organized religion, but the book, the narrative, which I sort of jokingly subtitled from Saint Pancras to Saint Augustine was intended to end with a meeting with Pope Francis, who of course is a reforming Pope. Have you completely given up on Francis and on the Catholic Church? No, and I'm glad you asked that question. Having said I've pretty much given up on institutional religion, Francis is the last best hope for the Catholic Church. Unfortunately, he's 84 or 85 and has only one working lung. He's been a revolutionary, and he's the first person to take the name of Francis, who is one of my heroes in the pantheon of Christian saints. Remember, the earlier Francis not just walked among lepers, gave up his clothes to work with the poor, but he then went and reached across to other faiths. He went to North Africa and tried to see the imams and the leaders of, of Islam, which was an extraordinary thing for one person to do at a time when they were at war with each other for so long. I greatly admire Pope Francis. Um, I say in the book that, I mean, it was a disappointment that I couldn't have a personal meeting with him because I, I wanted to ask him, you know, for forgiveness for what the church had done to my family, but also I just wanted to ask him some questions about how faith can still be a living thing and not a museum thing. And that's the great challenge of the church. It seems to be a museum faith, you know, locked in the past. And he's trying to make it a living thing. And it, Everybody knows about what Francis said about homosexuality when he said, who am I to judge? You know, a simple few words that, that seemingly launched a revolution. Of late, he said he doesn't, he believes in unions, you know, homosexual unions. He's not against that. I mean, all these things are things that the church got messed up in. So I, Francis is a great hope. And there's still an opening for me, I guess, not that anyone cares, to return to this church through him. He is a humanist. He speaks of the earth. He speaks of our need to, you know, to treat creation as something sacred and our fellow humans. And I think he's, a, he's obviously the most extraordinary person on the world stage right now among all world leaders. And so I have great hope for him still. I wish he was 55 instead of 85. Well, Pope Francis, I've heard he listens to this show. So if you're watching Pope Francis, Tim <laughs> Egan is still willing to take uh, to take a meeting with you. Uh, so <laughs> next time he does that long walk, he'll end up in your home. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, 
Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.